Hi, it's Larry from Hawthorne Bank. You know, our goal in 2022, as in years past, is to put as many friendly faces in more familiar places all over town as we can. At Hawthorne Bank, we'll continue to do what we can for our community, our schools, and our nonprofit organizations. Hawthorne Bank cares. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send out. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew 4, 12 through 23. Amen. You may be seated. Oh 
stand together. Read our psalm reading. This is from Psalm 27. David is uh, just reminding us we have nothing to be fearful of. God is our salvation. Let's read. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing I ask from the Lord this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of a sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. God, my Savior. Psalm 27, 1 and 4 through 9. Amen. You will do great things. 
Well, good morning, FBC. It's wonderful to be here with you today with my, my wife, uh, to come up here to Clinton from, from Springfield and uh, get to worship with you. I don't know if you realize this, but your worship team is amazing. So can we just give them a hand? You guys are very, very blessed. I was actually a worship pastor for a little over a decade, so I know the work that it takes and just the effort. And you all read scripture together, like a lot of scripture, which is awesome. Uh, just some really cool things that you all have going on here. So I'm so thankful for the invitation to come when you're in this uh, transition season and just share some things from God's word. Uh, one of the new, fun things about coming to a, a church family that you don't really know is getting to meet new people and to uh, introduce yourself to, to learn their names. Now, I got to say hello to quite a few of you and a few of you, I, I told you my name. But I, what's kind of funny is we were driving up and I asked my wife to write down the little, the bio piece. And she said something like, what name do you want me to put down? Like, well, my, my name? What do you, what, what is it, babe? Uh, the, the, what's interesting is that actually people know me by, by quite a few different names. Uh, some people just call me names. So that's a whole other, whole other thing uh, we don't want to talk about this morning. Um, but actually, a lot of people know me by a nickname. So I'm just curious, does anybody else in the room 
go by a nickname that's, you know, not on your birth certificate, not on, okay, what, what nickname do you go by? Mr. Bill. Mr. Bill? What's your real name? Well, okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. Anybody have a nickname that's totally different from any name on the birth certificate? Awesome, wonderful. Thank you for uh, sharing your wife's story with us. I appreciate that. That's awesome. Anybody else go by a name that's not your technical name back here in the back? I'll go by my wife, who, oh. who is Linda Joe, but she goes by Woo. 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 That's a new one. I like Woo. That's a, that's a fun one. That's good. Probably some of you uh, here, you know, we have uh, my wife's mom, our kids call her Gaga, you know, these kind of grandma, grandpa type names, different things. So people definitely know me by different names. And what's interesting is I can tell a lot about the person and the relationship I have with them based on whatever name they use to, to describe me or to call me. So if I'm walking, you know, at a store in the mall or something and I hear Dr. Kimbrough, it's, it's a former student. Like no one else calls me Dr. Kimbrough. If you call me Dr. Kimbrough at my church, everyone snickers because it seems strange to them that the long shaggy haired kid from high school that played the electric guitar is now the Dr. Kimbrough. That seems very strange to them. Uh, if I hear people call me Bernie, yeah, my name's Matt. If I hear people call me Bernie, which is actually what my wife calls me <laughs> in everyday life, uh, I know that they knew me in high school at Spring Hill uh, when I was there. So those are people that I've known for a long time that knew me in that stage of my life. So there's still quite a few people at Spring Hill that uh, I kind of grew up around. And so they'll call me Bernie and then other people are turning their heads going, who's Bernie? Why are you calling him that? That seems so very strange. Uh, most people do call me Matt. I do have a few cousins that still call me Matthew which is just, I just can't handle that. It seems so formal for me. So, but I know that those are my cousins. Obviously, my kids call me dad, something like that. Usually it's hey dad, and then it follows with can I have, blah, blah, blah. But all that to say, all these different names, and probably this is the same in your life, they reveal something about us. And again, something about the relationships we have. And I think in many ways that's true of the images that we get of salvation in Scripture. What we get is a lot of different pictures that describe to us what exactly Jesus did when he died on the cross for my sin and for yours. We get all these different pictures, these different images, and, and they're all true. They're not contradictory. What they're doing is like a diamond. They're giving us a different facet of this incredible, beautiful gift that we call salvation. And they tell us something a little bit different. They tell us another beautiful truth in these various images. So I think about these images of salvation, and we're going to look at this passage here in Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15 today. And one of the things that, it, that stands out to me and that we'll spend some time talking about today is the fact that the way we view our salvation changes how we view ourselves. The way we view what Jesus did on our behalf changes the way that we look at our own lives and who we are and how we identify ourselves. And I don't know if you look at the news ever or just look around in our society, but our world is suffering from an identity crisis. I mean, we could talk gender, but we could talk everything else too. People don't know who they are anymore. Everyone's searching to try to find themselves. And yet we have God's word and it tells us for the believer in Jesus Christ exactly who God has made us to be. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2 today. This is a really, really interesting letter, the book of Colossians. 
Uh, if you can imagine, just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. This is a church that Paul never visited. So somebody else came and shared the gospel with people who believed in Jesus Christ. They formed this church, and then they're sort of on their own. I mean, can you imagine? I don't know how, how, uh, how old this church is, but our church, Spring Hill, is about 115 years old. So I can't really imagine coming to a church in a land where nobody knows Jesus, having people believe the gospel, form a church, and then just sort of be left to figure it out. But this is the type of church Paul's writing to. And he's writing to a community who's surrounded by unbelievers, and the viewpoints of those unbelievers keep infiltrating into their hearts. So they've believed the gospel, but then everything that the world keeps saying is confusing them and they're not quite sure what they're supposed to do and who they're supposed to be and who this Jesus guy is that they have believed in. So Paul writes in chapter one, one of the most incredible and beautiful descriptions of Jesus. So I encourage you to go back and read that this week about who Jesus Christ is in Colossians chapter one. But we're gonna pick up in Colossians chapter two, starting in verse eight. And what we're gonna see are three images of salvation that Paul's going to give to this community to help them fight against the worldly influence into who they think they are. So I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. This is, this is Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. Paul writes, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. So can I press pause for just a second and then we'll go on. Listen to the language Paul's using here, that the, the viewpoints of the world, this human tradition, this, the things based on the elements of the world, they, they threaten to take this community captive. Captives are people who are ripped out of their homes and they're enslaved and they're brought to a place that they don't want to be. And that's how Paul views the worldview or the opinions of the world all around this community. And it's not just, oh, look at them and their nice little opinions. No, it is a threat, Paul tells them. It's a threat to what you believe. And the threat here is that you become captive to their viewpoints rather than Christ. So now he's going to go on and give us these three images of salvation. Verse 9. Four. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm so thankful to get to share your word, which is alive, it is living, it is active, it still pierces hearts with a community of brothers and sisters in a different town today. What a joy and a privilege it is. And God, I pray that each one of us walks away from this encounter with your word, 
with a sense of joy for who you've designed us to be and what you've done through Jesus. And God, also a great confidence in who you've designed us to be and what you've done in Jesus. That we wouldn't walk in fear, that we wouldn't walk in confusion, and that we wouldn't be taken captive by the opinions and philosophies of our world. But God, we'd be taken captive, captive by the beauty of the gospel and the truth about Jesus Christ. So God, be with us today. I pray that every word is your word and not my own, and that your word does not return void in this community. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned from this passage, we are going to see three images of salvation, and specifically these are things that will shape our identity of who God has made us to be. So image number one appears in verses 9 and 10, and this image of salvation is that you are filled with God. You are filled with God. I think, there we go, we've got that up on the screen, verses 9 and 10. So we're going to work back through these verses and just try to explain exactly what Paul is getting at here in the book of Colossians. So if you look back at verse 9, Paul writes, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. I mean, this is just a straightforward, face value, theological statement. Now, probably in our world, the part that seems very odd to everyone outside these walls, and maybe to some in these walls this morning, the part that seems strange to our world is that Jesus would be divine, right? That, it's a historical fact. I mean, you can go look at the ancient sources. It, it, it would be almost impossible to deny that Jesus existed. I mean, it's just all over the historical facts. You can go read Josephus and Tacitus and all these different, even secular historians. Jesus walked this earth. You can't d- deny the history, okay? But of course, in our world, everyone wants to say, well, he was a really, he was a good teacher. He was a very friendly guy. Look at all he did for the poor. But God, no way. That's what our world's saying. Now, what's interesting is Paul's world struggled with the exact opposite. They had no problem believing in some divine figure visiting them. I mean, if you're familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, they have all kinds of stories about godlike figures coming down. What they didn't believe or what they really struggled with is that Jesus came in bodily form. That he actually walked around and he actually ate food and he actually died and suffered up on a cross physically. That's what they struggled with. So I think actually what Paul's addressing here, or at least the most acute problem for them, is this idea that Jesus, no, he, the incarnation is true. He actually came down and dwelled among us. And by the way, can we just pause for a second and talk about the incarnation? I know it's not Christmas season. We've gotten past that, so happy new year. But, but this is an incredible truth. If you imagine, if you can think about the greatest vacation you've ever been on. Anybody ever been on a vacation that you absolutely did not want to come back home from? Right? You know that feeling? Because it it just feels like a little slice of heaven, doesn't it? But imagine a full slice of heaven. Imagine the presence of God, which we're told in Scripture is the absolute greatest thing we can encounter. Imagine no tears, no crying, no hurt, no pain, and then choosing to leave that and come to this. And that's what Jesus did. So Paul's celebrating the incarnation and how incredible it is that Jesus came and dwelled among us. And he had the fullness of God within his body. Verse 10, here's where he gets to us and to his original audience. Paul writes in verse 10, and you have been filled by him. 
So what Paul just said was Jesus has the fullness of God. Now he's saying, and you, by the way, you are full of him. You've been filled by him. And he is the head over every ruler and authority. Now, I do teach Bible and theology at SBU, so we're not going to go too crazy deep today. There's no test at the end. But I do want to mention a really very important doctrine called the doctrine of incorporation. So I'm going to have you repeat it after me. Incorporation. Okay, so if you're from the business world, maybe you've heard it used in that context. The doctrine of incorporation is very simple. It's this idea that I am in Christ and he is in me. But it especially focuses on the, the aspect of us being in Christ. It's a very important theological point in Scripture. Now, one way, there's a lot of different ways to think about it and illustrate this doctrine, but one way that's not a perfect analogy but may help us think through it, I think about my kids. So we have an 8-year-old named Riley, uh, who's a little girl, and then a 5-year-old boy named Cohen. Now, I think about Cohen especially. He's 5. He's still fairly dependent on us. My 8-year-old thinks she's 17 and can do whatever she wants. But our 5-year-old, he's... He's very dependent and just very sweet. And so in some ways, we could say he's incorporated into our family. What that means is, yes, he's got his own life. Yes, he's independent in some ways. But whatever happens that Emily and I choose to do happens to him. Or whatever happens to us, period, whether we choose it or not, happens to him. Guess what? If we go bankrupt, Cohen's bankrupt. He doesn't have anything. If somebody in this room decides the sermon was great and I want to write you a check for a million dollars for your personal family, then all of a sudden Cohen's a millionaire, right? If we're a very adventurous family and we just want to travel, travel, travel all the time, get in a van and just drive somewhere, then Cohen lives an adventurous life. So in other words, whatever is true of us, whatever happens to us, whatever we experience, because he's incorporated into us or into our family at least, that's true of him as well. Guess what? That's what scripture says about us in Jesus. What is true of Jesus when you believe in him and you are incorporated into Christ becomes true of you. Now, you may not feel like it. It may not look that way on the outside. But what is true of Jesus is true of you. Guess what? Jesus is a child of God. And you know what? So are you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. Jesus is deeply loved. He's called the beloved of the Father. And guess what? You, not because of yourself, not because of anything you've done or not done, but because of Jesus Christ, you are beloved. You are loved by him. One thing Paul's going to get to in just a second, Jesus died and he rose again. You know what that means for us? We've died and we've risen again. These are all things that are true of Jesus and therefore are true of us. So here's the reality for us, and here's why this is so critical. When God looks at you and when God looks at me as a child of God, he does not see a failure. He does not see a loser. He does not see a sinner. What he sees is his son in you. So the way that we define ourselves is not how the world wants to define us. It's not how we, we want to define ourselves by our belongings or by our titles or whatever it might be. How we define ourselves is by Jesus Christ. That's our true identity. And that's the only one that matters. And guess what, brothers and sisters? That identity doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
So the first reality is this one, you are filled with God and guess what, it changes things. It makes a difference. Our lives are completely different because we are filled with Jesus and we are in him. So that's the first image of salvation being filled with God. Here's our second one that we'll find in verses 11 through 13. The second image of salvation is that you are remade. You are remade, you are recreated. Verses 11 through 13. Now the language is gonna get a little weird here, so we'll try to cautiously explain it, recognizing there are young ears in the crowd. Verse 11 says this, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Seems very strange, doesn't it? Now, of course, we could go back and we could read Genesis 17. So I encourage you to write Genesis 17 down and go back and read it this week. And you'll see the chapter where circumcision is introduced. And when circumcision is introduced, God gives it to Abraham as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. So a covenant is just a formal relationship. It's to say, I want to have or I have a relationship you and I, with you and I want to make it official. Back when we were young and dating, it was called defining the relationship, DTR. You had a DTR talk. Do kids still say that? Any young people in the room? I don't know. Anyway, the relationship is defined, and that's called a covenant in the Old Testament. And usually covenants have signs, and a sign is just a physical outward signifier to say, hey, everyone, covenant here. This, this has happened. So back with Noah, what was the sign of the covenant? Anybody remember? The rainbow. So every time Noah sees this rainbow, it's a physical outward reminder. God made a relationship with you. He determined to do some things and asked you to do some things. There's a relationship here. Of course, many of us in the room are married and, and we have a physical outward sign of our relationship, don't we? Wedding ring. Now I can take this wedding ring off if I can get it off my finger. Okay, it's off. Am I unmarried now? No, of course not. It's not the ring that makes me married. The ring is a, is a symbol, and it's an important one. It's one that matters. If you see one of your brothers in Christ, and he says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to Vegas for a conference, and I'm leaving my wedding ring at home. Whoa, buddy, we need to have a conversation. We need to have a come to Jesus talk right here. Because that means something to us. That signifier does matter. Well, the same thing is true with us in Christ. Paul refers to the removal of our flesh. He's talking about the sinful nature that in Christ, the sinful nature is removed. It's kind of like circumcision. But circumcision is kind of like something that you and I have experienced, and we see it in verse 12. And it's baptism. Paul writes in verse 12, when, so when were you considered to have this outward symbol of the relationship when, verse 12, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So what is a, an outward sign of this new covenant God has made with us as believers? It's this wonderful thing called baptism. Now, I think this is your baptistry over here, I believe. So you see people come, they get in this baptistry, uh, there's some things that are said. Usually when I baptize, I'll say, uh, buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised in newness of life. That comes from Romans chapter six. But the point here is that this act is a sign of a relationship with God. 
And that sign is that you have died. I, I don't know if you've seen this with like kids when they get saved and they're rightfully maybe intimidated by this idea of getting baptized. I mean, it, it's, it seems a little freaky sometimes. Well, that's because it represents death, but it also represents resurrection. And when you come out of that water, it represents that that old you has died. That is not you anymore. It does not define you anymore. That old life, that old identity, it's gone. And you come out of that water. You come out of that grave with a new identity. Uh, I, so I teach at SBU. I was actually a student at SBU as well. Um, and what's kind of weird and, and, and interesting, I guess, is that I have the exact same ID number as when I was a student. So I won't say it because you're recording this and I don't want someone to steal my ID here. Um, but, but I have the exact same six-digit ID number that I had uh, whenever I was a student. So when I was a student, I had to put that ID on everything. Any of you have ID numbers like that where you just feel like you just have to use it all the time? So I had to use it all the time. So I memorized it pretty quickly. And then when I came back and saw it was the same number, I thought, well, that's easy. Nothing new to memorize. I'm, I'm good to go. So every once in a while, I'll go to lunch at our cafeteria with some colleagues, and our scan machine to scan our cards will be down. And when that happens, they have to take down our ID number so they can charge us the money for the meal. And when I just rattle it off, my colleagues are always going, what in the world? Did you memorize your ID number? I mean, that seems so strange to them because as faculty, we don't use it too terribly often. So it's interesting to think about, I have the exact same ID number, but my role has changed completely. I've gone from the student who's doing a bunch of work and paying you to do the work to being a faculty member who does a bunch of work and gets paid to do the work, right? Instead of taking the tests, I'm writing the tests. So it's a total role change, but I have the same ID. And I think in some ways that is kind of what it's like to become a believer. Yeah, I mean, you look at this person and I don't necessarily physically change when I become a believer. I've got the same ID number, but a totally different role, a totally new perspective on who I am. So what does God see when he looks at you? He doesn't see a sin-enslaved stranger. That was the old you. What he sees is a new creation in Christ, a beloved son or daughter. In verse 13, Paul writes, And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. Sounds a lot like Romans chapter 5. And I think the reason this passage is important is because it reminds us that God did not wait for us to save ourselves a little bit. Because that wasn't going to happen, by the way. It wasn't going to happen. This is not a begrudging work of God where he said, man, I guess I'll save Matt. He's such a punk. He's such a sinner. But I guess, I guess I'll send Jesus to die for him. No, it's not a begrudging work. God knew exactly who he was saving. He didn't wait to send Jesus until the world cleaned itself up a little bit and got its act together. He didn't wait for that. God doesn't wait to save us until we can resurrect ourselves just a little bit. It's not like how we treat my five-year-old Cohen when he eats a bunch of Cheetos and he's just covered in orange. And I say, okay, get a paper towel, clean yourself up the best you can, and I'll finish the job. Get all the rest of the crumbs. Well, that's because I want to teach him to be ind independent in some ways. That's not how God works. He doesn't work like that. He comes in, he takes the initiative, and he knows exactly who he was dying for. 
You see, Jesus didn't die for the person you hope you become. Jesus didn't die for the person you wish you were. Jesus died for the person that he knew you are. That's the one Jesus died for. So it changes how we view ourselves. We're not the old person. We've been remade. And that remade identity is what defines us. So yes, it's true. In image number one, you are filled with God. Image number two, you are remade. And the third and final image we see here is that you are free. You are free. We just sang about that, this idea of being released. You are free. This is verses 14 through 15, which are just incredible. Verse 14 says this, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and oppressed or opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. I don't know how much you know about the ancient world, the world that the Colossians lived in, but I can tell you some ways that they were different from us. No such thing as health insurance. No such thing as insurance at all. There's no workman's comp if you get injured at work. There's just really no, not even really much of a welfare system at all, uh, especially if you live outside of the city of Rome. So guess what happens if you're down and out? Someone has to, some individual has to come in and bail you out, and then you owe them. So the normal thing to happen, let's imagine you, you are providing for your family, you work a certain job, a profession, and you get injured and you can no longer help take care of your family. Well, some wealthy person might choose to help you out or you may end up begging on the street, but if they choose to help you out and pay money to, to help your family survive, then you're indebted to them and quite likely become their slave. And you're, you, you are their slave until you earn enough money as their slave to pay off the debt and release yourself. Now, what sometimes happened was you may have a family member who would come in and say, no, I want to pay off their debt. I want to give you the money. I want to bring them out of slavery and release them from this debt to you. And that act is called redemption in the ancient world. And redemption happened all the time. It wasn't just a theological word. Redemption was very much a common word for something that happened all the time in everyday life. People would come in and pay off a debt and release someone. But this is the exact language that Paul is using here. And what he's picturing is a debt because of our sin. And redemption from that sin in light of what Jesus did. And I think this language is important because sometimes we get to the point where we start to think of sin as just sort of a whoopsie-daisy. Oops, I tripped up. It's just a stumble. And we can easily end up actually making light of sin and making it into kind of a nothing. But what Paul's saying here is, no, actually sin came with a debt. Sin came with obligations that were against us. They are opposed to us. There's a weight to sin. But the good news is that the gospel, in light of how deep and dark our sin is, the gospel becomes even greater because we see what Jesus has overcome. You see, sin requires a payment. It requires rescue. It requires forgiveness. But the collector's bill has been nailed to the cross. What a beautiful image. I mean, that one stands on its own. And then we close out in verse 15. Paul writes, he, that be God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them 
in him, which is in Jesus. If you can imagine this sort of indebtedness even to the enemy, as if the enemy says, hey, they're a sinner, so I own them. And what does God do? God comes in and he does this incredible work in Jesus that not only releases us from that debt, but he actually strips the enemy of his power. Just rips it right off of him because the enemy's power is sin. And if sin's no longer the issue, it no longer defines us, then he strips the enemy of his power altogether. He disarms the authorities and the powers which Paul usually uses with regard to spiritual powers and authorities the demons, the enemy, and so on. And then he uses this language of triumph. Now that's, I mean, a word we can all understand, but this word actually has special significance in the ancient world. What often happened was in Rome, you would send out an army to go conquer the world. So you'd send them to Gaul, or you'd send them to England or wherever. And if they did a great job, the Senate could vote to give them what's called a triumph. So a general could earn a triumph. So the triumph was basically a parade. And the parade would start outside the city of Rome. The people would go out to the army and the, with the general kind of leading the parade. They would go out and meet this army and accompany them into the city. Now, in this triumph parade, there was a fairly set pattern of, of, of events. So you typically have the general, you'd have the conquering army, and then you'd have the, these like trailers full of loot, everything that they've taken from this land. And then very last in this triumph was captured soldiers and captured people who would be led through the streets of Rome in chains with people spitting at them and yelling at them and mocking them. So not only have these captured people lost their homes, many of them lost to death, family members, but now they're being humiliated marching through the city as a conquered people. That's the verb Paul uses here to describe what God did to the enemy. The enemy is, is bound. He, he doesn't have the power that in the life of the believer that we sometimes think that he has. He has been conquered and he is marched and publicly disgraced and humiliated because his power is gone. And what does that mean for us? If our enemy is humiliated and disgraced, it means we're free. We're released. He's paid the price. He's defeated the enemy, and we are free. So what do we do with all of this? Well, let, let me share just a few next steps of ways we can take these truths, these images of salvation, and not just walk, walk away thinking, well, gee golly, that's nice, but actually begin to practice living these things out in our lives. Step number one quickly is to lean in to your new identity, to lean in. So you remember that doctrine we all uh, said the name of earlier? The doctrine of? Oh, very good. Well done. I said there wasn't going to be a test, and now there's a test. So sorry. The doctrine of incorporation, when you read through the New Testament, you are going to find it everywhere. You're going to see language like, this happened in him, or you were crucified with Christ. You're going to see it all over the place. So I encourage you from here on out, you, you know a new thing, you have something to look for. As you read about Jesus, ask, how does this change who I am and how I live? If this is true about Jesus, how does it change how I live and how I act today? Let me just give you a couple of examples. If Jesus Christ was a forgiver, 
and you are in him, then maybe you can forgive your coworker who lied about you. If Jesus has an inheritance as a beloved child, then guess what? You have hope too. You have hope of a glorious future. We get all kinds of inheritance language in the New Testament because God has given us hope because we're in Christ. If Jesus submitted his will to the fathers and said, not my will, but yours be done, then maybe you can submit to the calling to go to the mission field. I heard about the IF conference, right? And maybe there's a calling that comes with that that says, oh man, I don't really want to go, but if, if Jesus can submit to God and I'm in him, then I can submit to God's will. So would you lean into that new identity? Number two, next step. I just simply labeled it out with the old and in with the new. Out with the old and in with the new. You know, as I think about the sin issues, and I talk to students all the time, I talk to a lot of pastors who will call and just say, hey, here's what's going on in, in my church. What do you think? Give me some advice. So I have a lot of opportunity to hear some of the, the disasters of life that are happening all around us. And as I see all different sin issues, both in my own life and, and externally, what I realize is that a lot of our sin issues are rooted in a search for our identity. We, we do a lot of sinful things in order to try to establish ourselves or find ourselves to be something specific. Maybe we say, I, I need more money so that I feel valued. I want to have this money because I want this status before everyone else where they look up to me and go, man, I wish I had that. So I'll siphon a little bit of money from my workplace into my account. And it just starts out as a little search for identity and turns into this huge issue. Some will say, I feel worthless if others think that she's better than I am. So I'm going to put her down every chance I get. And now we become slanderers because we're trying to build up our own identity and feel better about ourselves. You might be saying, man, I want him to finally say he's proud. So I'll knock down anyone that gets in my way. I'll sacrifice everything if I can just get those words out of his mouth. But brothers and sisters, that is the old way of looking at our identity. It's the old way. These are not the things that define us any longer. And for believers, our identity is set. It is rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus did, not in our actions. Our perceived successes or failures at work, they don't make us more or less valuable in God's eyes. These are not the things that define us. So here's my encouragement to you, and this is something I've been trying to do for a few months now, is would you work into your prayer life a routine of confessing to God who you are in Christ? God, I recognize, I know that I'm your beloved son, that you value me because of Jesus that all the things I could do or not do are not going to change my identity in Jesus Christ. Would you work that into your prayer life? Would you use it to combat that desire to earn your identity? And then third and finally, would you walk in freedom? It's for freedom you've been set free, Paul says in the book of Galatians. You can check out chapter five there. So walk in freedom. Uh, this past week, I don't know if anybody liked the show House Hunters. Anybody like to watch those kinds of shows? Okay, so I like House Hunters International, and I make my family watch it because I like to watch it. But this past week, we were watching an episode, and my wife can testify, she'll nod her head, that I was yelling at the people on the TV. I was like yelling at them. I believe she told me to calm down 
at one point. These people, and what I find, especially for these international house hunter people, they're always leaving the States with this dream of like a utopian world that they're going to, where everything's perfect and they spend all this time with their family and there's no, no such thing as stress and everything's great. Okay, so there's this family, they had a little uh, young child, they're leaving the States, they're going, I don't remember where it was, Sweden or somewhere like that, because they, they want to spend more time together and they want a, a less stressful life. However, these people did not have jobs, they had no prospect of jobs, and they ended up choosing a place that was over their budget. <laughs> now, I'm sitting here thinking as a major, you know, tight, tightwad here, I'm going, you're leaving to try to find freedom and you're enslaving yourselves to debt and you're going to have to work all the time to try to make ends meet and that's not going to be this utopian world you're searching for. But the truth is, I tend to live like that as well in my own life. I think something's going to give me freedom. I think, man, if I can just skip this time with God, I've got more freedom to do X, Y, Z. If I, can, if I can just not, they keep asking me to serve at church, but I don't really want to do that because then I have to be there and I really want my freedom to go down. I mean, you guys have lakes all around you, right? Let me get down to the lake, man. That's where I wanna be. I, I just wanna be free to be able to go and do what I want. But actually what ends up happening is the freedom we're seeking ends up being the thing that enslaves us. So during the invitation, maybe for the first time ever, will you honestly reflect on the temptations in your life at this season? What are the things that threaten to enslave you, even though you're free in Jesus Christ? And they're unique to all of us, just like our taste buds and our preferences, they're unique to us. You have unique temptations in your life in this season of your life. So what are they? Will you just pause during our closing here and be honest about those things? What situations make them more likely? Uh, if you're an alcoholic, uh, going to the bar is going to make that situation more likely, right? So what are, the, what are the situations that make it more likely? And then I encourage you to ask, what is the root of these issues? What is the root? Is it a desire for approval? Is, is it a desire for power? Is it a desire for control or for comfort in your life? What's the root of these temptations? And begin to address that. Brothers and sisters, today, temptations don't have to conquer you. You can walk in freedom. So I encourage you, seek counsel from a sibling. Share your life. Be open and honest. Scripture tells us a lot about confession and the value that it has. Find passages to memorize that remind you of truth that are related to your temptation. If your temptation is pride, find passages to memorize about pride and humility. And remember that Jesus has triumphed over our enemy. So as we close, I encourage you, write down what the Spirit has spoken to you immediately. Don't let any distraction come. Don't let something steal that away. And take time to respond through prayer and worship. Let me pray for us. God, we know that your word is true. We know that your word is good. And Lord, your word has spoken today. I know it has to my heart. And I pray that your Spirit is moving among us. So God, give my brothers and sisters in this room the freedom and the courage to respond to you. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen.